Well, good evening. It is nice to be with you uh, tonight. I don't know when the last time is uh, that I was here. It's been a, a few months, perhaps. And uh, before I read the scripture, uh, just a few uh, introductory matters. Uh, first of all, you'll see in your bulletin there's a little blank spot here. And if you have a pen or a pencil with you tonight, I'm going to invite you, not require, but invite you to write a few things down here. Uh, this isn't sermon notes. It has to do with the, the scripture reading. So uh, just to let you know, that's a nice, nice spot for that. One other comment before we uh, read. Um, if you happen to read the Bible on days other than Sunday, now that didn't sound right. Okay, let me, let's begin again. All right. When you read the Bible daily, uh, what is your goal? What do you desire to get out of the Bible reading? Uh, perhaps you seek some point of personal application, how to apply the Bible to your life. Perhaps, since it is, is the Holy Bible, you would like to sense God's presence as you read. Or maybe you're the type of person who's really into facts and you want to discover a, a nugget of truth that you have not thought about before. Now, while these goals are good, this evening... Here is what I'd like to emphasize. When we read the Bible, we should read it to discover more about who God is. Discover God's character as we read the Bible. So I picked a, a psalm that is just chock full of uh, descriptions of God. And as, as we read the first article of the Belgic Confession... Why were all of those descriptions in there? Well, it's because they're found in the Bible, and we'll see some of those in Psalm 97. So I'm going to read Psalm 97, and uh, at the end of the first screen, I'm going to pause, and please keep those verses up there for just a moment, and I'm going to invite you to just jot down in your mind or on paper uh, attributes of God that you see from the scripture passage. So Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols 
Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy, joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. The word of the Lord. When we read the Bible, when you read the Bible, what questions do you ask? And it's good to ask questions, and one of the important questions that we should ask is, what is this passage teaching us about who God is? Think about this, from Genesis to Revelation, one of the main themes of the Bible is to reveal to us who God is. And so, regardless of what passage you're reading, this is a good question for us to ask. And uh, for myself, when I ask this question as I read the Bible, and as I meditate upon it, and, and think about what I'm learning about God in the passage, the result is then I begin to think, what is my response to God's character? And if I truly understand God's character, my response as as a disciple of Jesus is not, you better live this way. It is, this is the way I want to live because of who God is. Now, as I uh, read this passage, uh, verse 1 Uh, God is sovereign, and uh, God's sovereignty, he reigns supreme, and he is in control. Verse 2, God is righteous and just. Verses 3 to 5 talks of God's greatness and power. Often we call this omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. Verse 6, God's righteousness Verse 7, God is sovereign. Verse 8, justice. And verse 9, sovereignty. I taught a summer school class this summer, and uh, I pulled out this psalm for a devotional exercise. And uh, after they read through it and uh, jotted down attributes of God that they found in this passage... I then said, read the passage again, and then write down what are the implications for your life. In light of who God is, what difference is this going to make in how you live? And I saved some of their responses, some of the the better ones, of 
course. And uh, here's, here's what the student said in response to God's character of Psalm 97. I should stop compartmentalizing my faith and bring God into all aspects of my life. Hate evil and let God take control of my life. I should live with the fear of the Lord. Live Christ-like and trust in God. Worship the Lord with a cheerful heart. I don't need to be afraid of change. And live with a greater awareness of God's presence. How does God's character affect our lives? Fortunately, God is not a ruler like the President of the United States, whoever that will end up being. This is not God. God is majestic, full of splendor and might. If we truly get God's sovereignty, it does make our knees knock, makes us tremble. And at the same time, this majestic God is a God that knows us by name, that looks at us with eyes of compassion and says, you are mine. This is the God we serve. I came across this quote from A.W. Tozer. He's a 20th century American pastor and author, uh, written, in fact, some Christian classics, uh, like The Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, Here's what he said as as it kind of relates to this message. When we come into this sweet relationship, we are beginning to learn astonished reverence, breathless adoration, awesome fascination, lofty admiration of the attributes of God, and something of the breathless silence we know. God is near. And so as we acknowledge these attributes of God in Psalm 97, what should our response be? Well, I have come up with uh, three responses. Um, You may uh, find other ones in the psalm as well, uh, but uh, I have three. In response to God's character in in, uh, Psalm 97, I was struck by my need for greater humility. Humility. Submission to God's will and to God's way. And you know as well as I, we can walk out of these doors tonight with such great intentions on this, and next week, just like that, something will happen, and immediately, life will become all about me and all about my will enforcing my agenda. We need to remember God's character and our call to humility. My actions in life do not create value for me. God graciously gives me, gives you value. And so we serve God with humility. Uh, To illustrate this point, I'd like to uh, share an interesting story about the wealthiest people that I've ever preached to. And I don't think they're in this room right now. Now, these people were so wealthy. I wouldn't say millionaires, I would, and not billionaires, but I would say hundreds of millions, okay? Uh, was, I'm approximating their wealth. 
Anyway, here, here's, here's how this went. Uh, the summer of 1988, I was a seminary student, and I signed up for a Christian ministry in the national parks. I was assigned to Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, just south of Yellowstone, Yellowstone Jackson Lake Lodge, where I, I worked at the resort, and then on Sundays, I preached to tourists in a uh, hotel meeting room that they let the ministry use. Well, uh, one Sunday, I was told that I would have some special guests. And uh, when I walked into this meeting room, the hotel staff were tidying it, tidying it up more than they ever have. I mean, it was extra clean. They brought in flowers. I never got flowers, okay? They brought in flowers, made sure the chairs were just so. I'm like, oh, my, this is quite something, you know? And uh, so then uh, some, some tourists walk in, and then walks in Mr. and Mrs. Rockefeller. Uh, this was Lawrence Rockefeller, so his granddad would have been the John Rockefeller of oil fortune. Um, he was uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rockefeller, about grandparent age, say, and uh, so they come in, and they're friends, Mr. and Mrs. Firestone. Yes, as the tire, Firestone. Um, it just so happened that Mrs. Rockefeller and Mrs. Firestone were on the national board for a Christian ministry in the national parks. So anyway, we had our service. I still remember what I preached on. It was, you must become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, after the service, they came up and, and greeted me, and uh, very, very kind, gracious people. Well, a few weeks later, uh, they were going to host a dinner at their home for their friends in the area. Uh, for the National Board of the Christian Ministry, and they invited me and uh, some others that were on the Christian Ministry in the National Park staff. This is all, of course, very exciting. So we get to the Rockefellers' home. They'd cleared out all the furniture in the living room and set up tables for dinner, uh, tables that seated, you know, eight or ten per table. Now, there were four head tables, and then there was just a bunch of other just random tables set up. Well, me and my friends were at the back of the buffet line, and uh, we were, you know, oh, isn't this cool, and we're all just, you know, talking and laughing and all of this, and then somebody came up to me and said, um, you need to skip to the front of the line because you're at one of the head tables. So there were four head tables, you know, Mr. Rockefeller, Mrs. Rockefeller, Mr. Firestone, Mrs. Firestone. And they, these couples had gotten together. It's quite political. And they had handpicked people and where they would sit at the four head tables. So I was like, oh, oh my. So I got my food and I looked for my name. I could not believe it. It was at the head table with, with Mr. Rockefeller. And not even on the end. It was right in the middle, right across from Mr. Rockefeller. On this side was the superintendent of Grand Teton National Park, and on this side was the wife of the superintendent of Yellowstone National Park. And here's me. <laughs> I just remember I changed. At, at, at one moment, I was like just laughing with my friends. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, here I was at this table. Now, I did not say, so, Lawrence, how was your day? No, I waited until somebody spoke to me. I tried to remember everything my parents taught me about being polite, be very careful. 
And actually, it turned out to be a wonderful time. Everybody at the table was, was so gracious and kind and included me in conversation and a wonderful, wonderful experience. I, I go into the story to say that the presence of these people affected how I acted. And my friends, how much more as we go through our daily lives, as we grow in our ability just to simply be aware of God's great and gracious presence in our lives, that this profoundly affects how we walk through life, how we interact with people, simply how we live. Psalm 97, his lightning lights up the world, the earth sees and trembles. How do we act with humility before our great God? The second response that uh, I considered after reading Psalm 97 uh, was holiness. It's holiness. Uh, we live in a world where holiness, or living righteously according to God's word, is more and more countercultural. As uh, our society is shifting more and more away from a, shall we say, Judeo Christian ethic, uh, to live a a holy life in society, very countercultural. It's obvious. At the same time, I believe a holy life is also culturally relevant. Because it's so different, people will see and observe, consider what, what type of life is this person living. And very often... A person will not say it, but they may think it. There is something attractive about this lifestyle. There, there's something peaceful and joyful and pure in that, and they can be attracted to it. So even though holiness is countercultural, I also believe it is culturally relevant as well. Uh, to illustrate this point, uh, years ago, between ministries, um, I worked in a bread factory. Um, I will not go into all of the details how I got, how I got ended up there, but anyway, I worked in a bread factory, and uh, within a, a few hours of the first day on the job, it became apparent that I was different right away. And uh, the reason was because of my language, or shall I say my lack of language. At this bread factory, the language was, was just profane. And uh, people were even swearing when they were happy. I mean, they would greet one another with a cheerful tone, swearing. It's like, oh, oh my, I'm not used to this. Um, now, never once did I try to fit in with the guys and you know, let a few words slip. I, no. Um, and I did not wag my finger and say, clean up that mouth of yours. Uh, I just kind of lived 
with, with holy words. And it became very apparent that we were different. Um, as I grew in my relationship with these guys and got to know them, um, I could see that they, they respected me for my lack of language. And it did have an effect on my coworkers. Uh, the swearing did go down. Um, they stopped swearing when they were happy. The, hey, this is good, you know, right? Uh, of course, when things happened bad, some words would fly. Uh, but it, it went down. And uh, there was just this, this difference between us. Um, also, if something happened, maybe our boss said something or some guy did something that was really irritating, um, I just didn't spread bad reports about people. Uh, the other guys, uh, it, you know, they would not forgive easily or they'd hold a grudge, oh, that guy, you know, this. And I just continued to, to treat people with respect and kindness and this was a difference. Uh, one other uh, uh, difference was uh, when we talked about our day off, bread industry does not have weekends because all of you need fresh bread. Give me a break. So our days off were split days in the week. Uh, speaking of that, do you know which uh, holiday Americans eat the most bread on? It's a little trivia fact. I mean, I know. I, I lived it. Um, it is not Christmas or uh, Thanksgiving, uh, which bread does spike during those times. Uh, it is July 4th, because every stinking American eats hamburgers and hot dogs. It was, it was nuts. Anyway, um, when we would talk about our days off, very often, the guys would just talk about how much beer they consumed. And I would say, well, well, my, my family did this. <laughs> my family did this. It's very, very different. Um, and over time, uh, they got to know me and uh, that I was a person that was committed to Jesus Christ, committed to the body of Christ, the church. And uh, I could see it. I could see it in them. That some of them looked at this, this holy life. It was not perfect, but they looked at this and and it was attractive. As we respond to God's character, there is this call to holiness. To holiness. How do you allow unholiness into your life? The almighty, majestic God, absolutely holy God, sees us. He is with us and he sees us. Psalm 92 or 97 verse 2. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. There is no moving God on this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so in response to this, in response to God's grace in our lives, we are called to live a holy life. A response to God's character, humility and holiness. In an effort to keep my alliteration, please don't judge me on my last word. Let me explain before you go, oh, shallow, shallow. Okay? Okay, so humility, holiness, 
and happiness. Okay, happiness. I, I need to keep the H's going. Now, what is biblical happiness? Well, it's joy. And it's be glad, rejoice, that's what's in here. So I'm really talking about rejoicing and joy, but, well, happiness. So often, we may judge the quality of our day based on, well, how happy was I today? My day's really good. If there were a lot of things that made me happy. We also live in a culture where there might be people that are raised with these certain moral standards, and then when they get older, they will change their moral standards to suit themselves so that they can be more happy. What does God's word say? Because of God's character, we rejoice. So biblical happiness, you could say, is elation that is not based in circumstances, but it is based on who God is. So at the bread factory, I was really questioning where my life was headed. I really did not know. Nothing against the bread industry, just personally, I was like, what's happening with my life, you know, next month? next year, and beyond. And as I thought about those questions, I could see my attitude just kind of dipping. And this was a time in my life where, by necessity, I had to, on a daily basis, go to God in prayer and feed on his word in order just to maintain a, a, a sense of, of peace of where I was at in life. What God was doing was teaching me to feed on Jesus the bread of life at the bread factory. Is this not good? I was like, oh, I, I like this. But I, I had to because my attitude, I, I saw it. As long as I stayed in God's word, as I stayed seeking God in prayer on a daily basis, as long as I did that, I actually, I went to work with joy. And I smiled at people, I had a good attitude, and it wasn't just, wow, I love this place with no windows, and I'm not sure what the future is, and swearing people and kind of depressed people as well. But I had the joy of the Lord because of who God is as I fed on Jesus Christ and looked to his word. It is so important for us as God's people to respond to God's character and trust in his character so that we can go through life with, with, with joy with rejoicing, with not a superficial happiness, but a happiness that is elation based on God's character. Psalm 97.1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Why? The Lord reigns. As I was looking over 
these responses to Psalm 97, humility, holiness, happiness, or or joy, I, I thought of Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who in a humility that boggles my mind, and I still don't fully get it, eternal Jesus Christ takes on humanity. He becomes a man. What humility. And Jesus lived a perfect, a holy life. He did not deserve to die at all. But why did Jesus die? For my holiness, for for your holiness, so that our sins would be forgiven, so that through the work of Jesus, Almighty God the Father sees us and says, you are holy. And why make us holy? So that we could have joy, not just now, but so that we could have joy for eternity. And one Bible passage that also amazes me is Hebrews chapter 12, verse verse 2, that combines the concepts of joy and the, and the crucifixion, which to a normal thinking person, this seems odd. But it says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. For the joy set before him, because he knew what a blessing it would bring to his children. As I conclude the message this evening, I'd like to end with a prayer. And uh, this prayer was uh, written by a man I referred to earlier in the sermon, A.W. Tozer. Uh, Let's bow for a word of prayer. O Lord, in our hearts, we kneel before you this evening with a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder. Use us, Lord, to stimulate within others some of this much-missing sense of awe. Amen.